in the book, we'll be looking at various texts in the book this morning. I know last week I mentioned that we finally made it to our final introductory sermon, um, and we certainly did last week. We began that final sermon, but I didn't mention that it would be coming in two parts. Actually, I, I made that up on the fly last week when I realized we weren't going to get through the whole thing. But um, I don't. I didn't want to rush through this portion of it. I want. I want you to see the overall structure of Revelation. So your handout is exactly the same as it was last week. Um, obviously, this does depend upon some of the stuff we mentioned last week. I'll just briefly recap that. But I want to go through this outline and give you a portion or a text from each one of those sections to try to basically make the case that this framework of Revelation makes the most sense of the text. So last week we began our consideration of the structure of Revelation. We talked about John's dependence upon the Old Testament. His frequent allusions to the Old Testament is is very obvious, right? He he we we cannot understand Revelation without taking his allusions seriously. He he alludes to all or almost all 39 books of the Old Testament. He alludes to 36 out of 39 of them in his between three to five hundred allusions, depending on who's counting. Um, we also looked at some examples of those uh, of the repetition that we'll find. Um, we looked at the the repetition in terms of numbers between sections three and four, between uh, about or regarding the forty two months, the one thousand two hundred and sixty days, and then the phrase times, times, and time and a half. All of those references equal three and a half years. And so the argument I made was that those are parallel events that are taking place, right? They're not, it's not three and a half years, three and a half years, three and a half years. It's, it's, they're, they're parallel events and they're in different sections of Revelation. So you, you already have some overlap. And that's a very obvious overlap because really no one denies that 42 months is not three and a half years. That, um, you know, that that uh, 1,260 days does not also equal 42 months, which is also three and a half years. So, again, no one can deny the, that parallel. The argument that I want to make is that that parallel happens in each one of these sections, not just in that overlap from three to four. So we compared the, the trumpets and the bowls, and we found that um, that each deal with the judgment on a particular part of the earth in a parallel fashion. So you have not just section 3 and 4 parallel, but now you have 3, 4, and 5, or, or arguing that the seven trumpets and the bowls have a lot of parallel between them. So the main idea, again, at the top of your outline, is that the structural frame of Revelation is the seven cycles of recapitulation which cover the entire period between the first and second coming of Christ. And again, I know that word is big, but it's, it's a helpful word because it describes what we see, this recapping of events that have already been described, right, from different angles. So think of it as a movie scene or a set where you're looking at the same event, the same scene, but you're looking at it from different angles. So in fact, you do see different characters in the scene. You see different, um, different aspects of, of, of that scene that you wouldn't have. So it's recapitulation of the same event described from a different angle. Um, and all of it covering that first and second, the time period between the first and the coming of Christ. 
Now, one of the commentaries that I'm reading is Vern Poitras, and he does provide some very detailed outlines that I find I think are, are excellent and they're helpful. They actually complement this outline. They don't contradict this outline. But I think if you're going to just get a broad overview of the book, it, this is the simplest and most comprehensive basic um, outline. It's these, these seven-fold outline. Um, it follows along basically William Hendrickson's uh, view, although I've Tweak just a few of the places where where a section ends and another one begins. Um, I follow along closely with Joel Beakey's outline, but I'm not even quite identical with his either. Uh, broken, but ultimately very similar views there of how the the book should be broken up into its sections. So instead of reading one passage, uh, we're going to take some time to to read portions from each section this morning. So before we begin. Let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that we can study it, and we can be encouraged by it, and that even a child can understand it, Lord, what is essential. We recognize that some of these concepts, some of, some of the discussion in Scripture is over the heads of, of children, and yet what is essential in your word for salvation is clear and understandable to everyone at any age, Lord. So we pray that you would bless our study of your word now, that you would give us eyes to see the truth, give us ears to hear it, give us hearts that are prepared to receive it and respond to it in obedience. And in the end, Lord, we ask that you would be glorified, that we would be edified. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so this first section is dealing with the what I've labeled the seven churches. And of course, the section includes other aspects, but I would say that's kind of the, the primary component of verses or chapter one through three. Really, the churches aren't even brought in. The letters to the churches don't come in until chapter two and, and three. But the section emphasizes the unity of Christ, which you have a vision of Christ, the son of man in chapter one and his church. Uh, he is with her. He is standing in her midst. Uh, he calls her to repent of her spiritual lethargy and compromise with the world. Uh, she is called to remain steadfast in her struggle against worldly temptation. And you have a continual refrain in these letters. Uh, notice chapter 2, verse 7. And he who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. That first sentence, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, is repeated. Notice this was the first church that, the, that you have a letter written to is Smyrna, or sorry, Ephesus. You have the church of Ephesus receiving a letter that says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Plural. It's not just hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to you, Ephesus, but Ephesus, believers, listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches, which is all of the rest of these letters, where he repeats that same line, verse 11, to Smyrna. We read this, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Again, in verse 17, to Pergamum, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In verse 29, to Thyatira, 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And again, in chapter 3, verse 6, 13, and 22, you have that full sentence there given to each one of the churches. So note the expectation is that all of the letters in Revelation 2 through 3 would have been read by all of the churches. In the very beginning, the first week, as we were laying out the book of Revelation, we talked about the, the fact that there were other churches in this region of Asia Minor. Although there are seven listed here, there's other ones that John could have written to. And so it's symbolic. The idea is that this, these letters are all meant for the church, universal. Right? It's meant for us today as well. It's meant for all churches in all places, all regions, who are suffering in this world, either from their own sin and compromise or from the persecution coming around them. And oftentimes it's from both, right? It's from our own hearts of, that are corrupt and from the corruption that surrounds us, the temptation that we face. So the church in Ephesus heard what was said to Smyrna, and they were encouraged to hear the Spirit's words to them all. And though the first century churches in Asia Minor are the initial subjects of John's letters, Clearly, these exhortations are relevant to every church in every age, even the other churches that were in existence in Asia Minor that don't get listed out of these seven churches, right? This is for anyone who has ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the church's trials purify true believers. They remove the dross from their lives and ultimately bring them closer to God. I think that's sort of the theme of those first three chapters. Oftentimes, that's if you've got a sermon series on the book of Revelation, that's kind of where they focus, is those letters to the churches, because it is universally applicable. It's important for all of us to hear this language. Of course, I find value in the rest of Revelation, and so I think it's going to be really good for us to study the rest as well. So let's move on to the next section, chapters 4 through 8 which I would say the defining characteristic of these sections is the seven seals. Again, it doesn't span the entire section, but you have that consistency with seven churches receiving letters, now seven seals being opened. The scene transitions now to this heavenly throne to take with all of its splendor and glory, and you have the Lamb who is worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. Christ our King riding on a white horse, and that first seal conquers his and our enemies, and he's doing that repeatedly throughout the present age. And so each seal that is opened reveals another element of the spiritual warfare of the church on earth, that, that the church on earth must face, right? That we're the church militant. We have this fight taking place with evil. And then the sixth seal does show us final judgment, verses 15 through 17. Chapter 6, verses 15 through 17 is the sixth seal showing final judgment. Listen to this. It says, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us. And hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand? Very clearly a picture there of final judgment. They're crying out uh, for the mountains to fall upon them. 
And what's, what's that followed by? In chapter 7, you have it followed by this heavenly consummation of the seventh seal, which in verses 15 through 17, and you could read the, the whole chapter there, but verses 15 through 17, we read this. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You see very parallel language there with the new heavens and new earth described in chapter 21 later on. This is the final state in chapter entering into that heavenly consummation described all the way in chapter 7, right? So, so, so you have the whole period between the first and second coming being described in this section. Let's look at the next section, chapter uh, 8, verse 2 through eleven nineteen. Here is the seven trumpets. And in response to the prayers of the persecuted church, God's Judgment is depicted here through seven trumpet blasts. Uh, these judgments, like the persecutions that the church is praying for strength in the midst of, uh, they span the entire present age. Right? Persecuting, the church is, is experiencing persecution from the first century to today. Right? We've been experiencing that uh, persecution upon the church. And so these tr- these trumpets are describing judgment that is carried out uh, during that same period. Thirteen times we read a third uh, regarding the trumpets, uh, referring to the destruction of the earth, of trees, corruption of the seas, the death of sea creatures. It's a third of all of this, a third of the ships, a third of the rivers, a third of the waters, the sun, the moon, and the stars and a third of mankind, all of it either being destroyed or corrupted through these trumpet judgments. And so these trumpets don't utterly wipe out evil, which describes why we still see idolatry and murder and sexual immorality. In chapter 9, verses 20 through 21, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of their works or of their hand. Uh, the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries, taking sexual immorality or their thefts. Okay, so there's partial judgments that are taking place throughout history that's described by these trumpets. And at the same time, what happens in this same section as well is the church's witness. Is taking place in chapter 11, verse 7. And when they have finished their testimony, these witnesses, which represent the church, they're, they're, when they finish their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. Clearly talking about the end here now. Now, if the witnesses are the church and the, and the beast kills them, how does that explain history? Well, we'll see in chapter 11 that they rise again. Right? They, they come back to life and God calls them to heaven. Chapter 11, verses 11 through 12. And then we read of a final judgment in chapter 11, verse 18. The nations raged, but your wrath came. 
and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Very clearly, again, you have um, the final judgment taking place. You have partial judgment happening throughout and a a representation of that final judgment. So the judgment described in this seventh trumpet is universal and complete. It's not partial like the previous ones were. All right, so you get to the next section, which transitions now from an earthly struggle to a heavenly struggle. And it's sort of like the, the spiritual conflict that's taking place behind the physical persecution that we experience on earth. Behind all of this earthly conflict and, and, and destruction lies this age-old conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, Genesis 3.15. Right, Satan is depicted as a dragon in chapter 12, seeking to devour Christ, seeking to devour the male child, essentially at his first coming. That first section there is essentially a Christmas text. Right? It's, it's the first coming of Christ, and the dragon is seeking to devour the child. And when this fails, he pursues the woman and the rest of her offspring which represents the church, chapter 12, verse 17. So the dragon forms a counterfeit trinity with the beast and the false prophet, and they employ the help of the harlot Babylon. And they unite to destroy the church. But we get a vision in chapter 14, verse 3, of the 144,000 that have already been described in chapter 7 as enjoying the heavenly consummation. That 144,000 who had been redeemed, we see that in verse 3. Look at 14, verse 3. They were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. This is a picture of the universal church gathering together. It's, it's um, an astronomical number. Right? It's, a, it's, a, it's a massive number that describes the church universal And where are they gathered? They're found standing victoriously with the Lamb on Mount Zion. So you have the beast taking, gathering people together, gathering forces to destroy the church, but the church will be victorious with the Lamb. Once again, this section will conclude with final judgment in verses 14 through 15. Then I looked and behold a white cloud and seated on the cloud one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. He's about to reap the judgment of his wrath. Ultimately, upon the earth. So although Christ's enemies are ultimately defeated in this same time at the same event, the second coming of Christ, Revelation describes them separately. Okay, so it takes each one of them and depicts their destruction separately. And that's where we begin with the seven bowls in chapter 15. Chapter 15 through 16. Uh, those who identified themselves with the beast, these are Humans who identify themselves with the beast are filled with 
hatred for God, and they live in unrepentant rebellion against him. Uh, Specifically, you see that in chapter 16, verse 9 through 11. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. In verse 21, And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hell because the plague was so severe. So what's being described here is those who were living in unrepentant rebellion receiving the wrath that they're due. The warnings of the trumpets are now followed by the experience of the bowls of God's wrath. Again, this is clearly representative of the final judgment, which will conclude with a shout from the throne of heaven declaring, it is done. Chapter 16, verse 17. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. You have judgment taking place, partially final judgment being described once again there at the end. The sixth section. 17 through 20. The next enemy to be defeated is the great prostitute who made the earth drunk with her sexual immorality. Okay, so in, in the previous section, the seven bowls, it's the judgment of, of those who had gathered and united with the beast, humans who had identified themselves with the beast. But here you have the harlot primarily being described as being judged and she'll be followed by the destruction of the, of the beast. But this is the next enemy to be defeated, is the great prostitute who made the earth drunk with her sexual immorality. In fact, her, uh, the description of her in chapter 17 is that she herself is drunk with the blood of the saints that she has tempted with her sexual immorality. And so all those who, I, who identify with her will mourn her death. Chapter 18 Verses 9 through 20. We won't read that whole section there, but verses 9 through 20 describes the earth essentially mourning. Look at verse 9, 18, 9. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. And so they're mourning while the saints in heaven are described in chapter 19, verses 1 through 5. And after this, I heard what seems to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. So while the earth is mourning her death, saints in heaven are rejoicing at her passing. These saints are then invited to enjoy the marriage supper of the Lamb. In verses 6 through 10 of chapter 19, you have the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the reason why they're invited into that is because the rider on the white horse is now conquering the beast and the false prophet. He's putting them 
to an end in chapters, uh, in verses 11 through 21. Then you finally come to chapter 20, the beginning of the millennial reign. You have the millennium once again shows us this entire age between Christ's first and second coming, which involves the binding of the dragon from deceiving the nations in verses 1 through 3, as well as the reign of saints from heaven, described in verses 4 through 6. And then finally, the dragon is defeated in verses 7 through 10, followed by the final judgment, once again described in verses 11 through 15. So read with me that section. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the book, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was found or was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Again, very clearly the final judgment. And this is followed in the book of Revelation by the final reward. And notice the, the contrast. First of all, <clears throat> go back to chapter 17, verse, verses 1 through 3. I want you to see a contrast between the prostitute described in 17, the harlot of Babylon, and the bride of Christ described in chapter uh, 21, verses 9 through 10. So in 17, 1 through 3, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to him, come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality. And with and with the wine of those sexual, uh, with, with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on the earth have become drunk, and he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. So this description of the of the prostitute is now paralleled with the description of the bride in chapter 21. Jump ahead to chapter 21 and look at verses 9 through 10. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride and the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. From God, So you have the angel coming and the speaking to him, showing him a woman, the bride, instead of the prostitute, and the same uh, description of the spirit carrying them away. And uh, so it's a, it's a parallel here. It's a, a contrast between the prostitute and those who identify with her and the bride of Christ, those who identify with Christ. So the final judgment of the previous section leads us to this consummation of the new heavens and the new earth. In chapter 21, 1 through 8, again, we, we hear the declaration, it is done. 21, verse 6, and he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. 
So the bridegroom is now united to the bride forever. And the lamb is seated on the throne, surrounded by the river of the water of life, which is the ultimate tree of life, which bears fruit every month of the year. And its branches extend on either side of the river. So the, the epilogue then concludes with just a description of a blessing upon believers who, who take heed to the words here and, and an exhortation for seekers and then also a promise that Christ is coming soon. Also, there's a, a warning about anyone who would manipulate at the words of, of this revelation, adding or taking away from it. All right, so we'll conclude here. Hopefully, what you've, what, what you've seen here as we've gone through each section is the argument for parallel cycles, that the cycle of history keeps repeating itself throughout the book of Revelation. Um, I really don't see a better way of reading this, this text in a, in a more simpler way uh, than the one that's been laid out by this structure. So in, a, in addition to seeing recapitulation, we do see an obvious increase in the level of that intensity. So that when you, by the time you get to the end, the description of final judgment is, is laid out in all of its fullness. But earlier, you have very clear descriptions of the end, right, of final judgment. You have very clear descriptions in chapter 7 of both, or, or in chapter 6 of judgment and in chapter 7 of the heavenly consummation, right, of, of the saints praising God in, in, in heaven. Um, and then you see that very all the more clearly in the end. Several chapters of description there. So, in fact, you even see it in the destruction that escalates from thirds uh, to quarters. So you have in chapter 6, the destruction is a third of the earth, a third of the sun, a third of the moon, as I was describing. In chapter 8, it becomes, or sorry, in chapter 6, it's quarters. In chapter 8, it's thirds. And in chapter 16, it's the whole earth. And so there's an escalation of the intensity of the destruction, even as there's an escalation of the glory and the triumph of victory. So they bring partial, uh, although the trumpets are parallel with the bulls, they aren't as devastating. They bring partial judgments and warnings that are followed by a universal wrath of the bulls. But they represent the progression of the same event. So the same is true of the triumphant victory and the picture of heavenly glory. What begins with hints of praise and thanksgiving by the end becomes an endless feast and celebration at the marriage supper of the Lamb. So time and time again, as we make our way through this book, God is reminding us that we must choose whom we will serve. And we will be faced with that time and time again as a church. We'll be reminded from the beginning Right? Of, uh, the warnings that are given to the church, those are going to be repeated. But as well as, as the hope of persevering is repeated as well. Right? God is reminding us that we must choose whom we will serve. Will we compromise with the world? Will we unite ourselves with the counterfeit purposes of the dragon, of the Antichrist, or of the, the false prophet, or even the harlot Babylon? If so, we can be certain that our fate will be the same as theirs. Eternal judgment in the lake of fire. There is nothing light and fluffy about Revelation. And it doesn't compromise on the judgment that will take place. 
it, it doesn't it doesn't beat around the bush, right? Its its warnings are no less serious because they're oftentimes presented in a figurative fashion. Right? They're just they're to be taken just as seriously, and the same can be said about the glory that awaits. Right? We can be just as certain that if we belong to the King of Kings by faith. We will not only conquer death and evil through him, but he will usher us into an eternity of ceaseless joy. And so may that increase our hope of his return and encourage us to share that hope with others as we study this word together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 